Philippians chapter 2. All right, Pete wants to thank everybody for the food and for the, the prayers. Uh, Pete's been a little under the weather, a little dizzy. They're having a hard time with his balance. He's doing better, not 100% yet, but they think they've discovered something. He's getting some therapy and medication, so he's doing a lot better. And, and Pete, we're so glad you're here, brother, and you too, Avis. And uh, thanks for taking care of him, Avis. You tried. Okay, that's good. Yeah, we're, we're glad for that. Um, you guys are a great example to all of us for loving each other uh, and taking care of each other and loving our Lord. So thank you for doing that. Um, well, we are continuing our study. We're picking back up our study in the book of Philippians. We've been out of it for a little while. It's, it's been four weeks at least, I think, since we were in Philippians because then I was gone for two weeks and Jared preached. And last week I, I preached on the Lord's Supper and what the Scripture teaches about the Lord's Supper. And so we're back in the Philippians. We'll be there for a while so we can settle in a little bit. You can just kind of put your marker there in Philippians and expect to turn to it next week. Lord willing, that if we're here, we'll be in Philippians, okay? If the Lord doesn't come back. So, um, But uh, the title of this message uh, this morning is, Who is Working? Who is Working? And uh, I want to read for us, drop back a little bit. Um, we'll be looking at verses 12 and 13, but I want us to drop back. And I want to read us uh, all of chapter 2 up to this point to get us back in context of where we are, where these verses are in Philippians. So Philippians 2, if you turn there with me, if you haven't already, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then we will pray and ask the Lord to do what only he can do. Verse 1, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but, all, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is, with, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are uh, at our time of our corporate worship together where we go to your word and we read your word and we, we, we preach from your word. We explain your word. We um, want to apply your word in our lives. But Lord, we're your, your mercy to understand. We're your mercy to apply it. So Lord, we're calling on you to do what only you can do, Lord, to change us from the inside out so we might glorify you in response to the preaching of your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you all have seen the famous Abbott and Costello discussion called Who's On First? Anybody else seen the old clips of that? If not, go look it up on YouTube. It's worth it. Um, it is a classic and still one of the funniest things you'll ever see. 
especially when Abbott and Costello do it, because they, may just, they just take on the character. And, it's, and it will still give you a gut laugh, even though you know what's coming. And just because of the way they do it. It's really funny, but it's called Who's on First? What happens is Abbott tells Costello that he's been given a job with the New York Yankees as an assistant baseball coach. And Costello says to Abbott, um, look, Abbott, if you're the coach, you must know all the, the players. And, and Abbott responds, I certainly do. And then, um, uh, so then Abbott says, well, let's see we, 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 who, who we have on the bags. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. Costello says back to him, that's what I want to find out. And Abbott says, well, I, I said, who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Well, Yes. And you're going to be the coach too. Yes. And you don't know the names of the fellows on your team? Well, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing who's on first. I'm asking you who's on first. And they go back, back and forth on this, and it's just it's hilarious. And they even get the outfield on. Why and because are in the out, they play in the outfield, and the pitcher's name's tomorrow, and the catcher's name is today, and the shortstop's the last one you find out about. I don't give a darn. That's the shortstop. The only guy not mentioned is the right fielder. And somebody, they, they did a survey I saw one time. What should they name the right fielder? And uh, uh, just if they included him. And uh, somebody said, nobody. So that'd probably be good in the right fielder. Who's, who's in, that, uh, in the right field? Nobody. Uh, but the who's, uh, the who's on first bit is it, it, both funny and it's also confusing. Um, I mean, this is back and forth, and all of a sudden you're getting frustrated too. You're, come on, if you, you know, if you don't get it quickly, you're pretty frustrated too. But our question this morning is neither funny nor is it confusing. Our question is who is working? Who is the one at work in the Christian life? The answer to this question is critically important for us to understand so that the Lord is glorified in and through our lives. We need to answer that question. Who is working? Who is working in the Christian life? And when the answer to this question is out of balance, it leads to all kinds of things that do harm to the name of the Lord. They don't help anything. But thankfully, Paul is always is very clear in answering the question, who is working? And he answers it in our passage this morning. Uh, and the answer might surprise you. It might surprise you. But before we examine these uh, two verses, verses 12 through 13, uh, let's be reminded of where we are in Philippians. That's one of the reasons I read all of chapter 2 up to this point, so we would get in the right context. We want to see where these two verses fit into the context of chapter 2 and all of Philippians uh, uh, that he writes to these believers. Uh, let, let's begin by remembering what we, we learned from verse 27 of chapter 1. And the reason being is because it's the overarching imperative uh, of at least down through chapter 2 and maybe all of Philippians. Paul exhorts them, as we saw, with just one thing. He begins that verse only, and it's the word monos or monos. We, we, we know that. for We understand that's one. And he's basically saying just one thing. 
nothing else. If you're going to do anything, just remember this one thing. Do this one thing. And what was the one thing there in verse 27? He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the just one thing. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, the information following, again, this imperative explains what it means to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I always like Paul because he explains himself. He'll make a statement, and then soon after, he'll explain, here's what I mean. This is what it looks like to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. When he begins in verses 28 through 30, saying what it looks like to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is to stand firm and fear not in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their persecution. Uh, and then in verses 1 through 4, uh, he explains further what it means to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel by uh, this, this whole idea of selfless humility. And kind of the theme of that is found in verses 3, four, 3 and 4, which uh, we, we repeat, repeat quite often around here because it's one of my favorite verses. Uh, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And, and this is a clear imperative that, that we will follow all the way down through chapter 2, even that imperative. Uh, to, to be selfless. And then he illustrates it. He, don't, he makes, makes sure that we don't miss the point of verses 3 and 4. Uh, this idea of conducting ourselves in the manner of the word of the gospel through, through selfless humility by giving example after example down through chapter 2. And we'll see a couple of those examples in the, in the weeks to come. But we saw already the first one and the best one and the perfect one. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ as he selflessly humbled himself and put others before himself. And uh, what an illustration. So, so in verses 6 through 8, he does this. We saw the humiliation of Christ, which leads to the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11. And we discovered that, that those verses last time we were together. So with this in mind, let's now turn our attention to verses 12 through 13. And as we examine these two verses this morning, I will be faced with two true, listen to this, true, two true and inseparable Statements that answer the question, who is working? They're both true, but they're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And by answering and understanding who is working, we'll be better able to follow the command that we're given in this passage as we understand these two truths um, and, and be able to live out the, the overarching imperative of chapters one, probably through the rest of the, the, the epistle from verse 27 of chapter 1, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Don't we want to do that? Don't we want to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? I know I do. I want to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And here is, uh, we're going to see as we work through these two verses that if we understand this and we apply this, we'll be able to better conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So look at verse 12 with me again. So then, my beloved... Just as you, or you might pronounce it beloved. I'm not sure that this just sounds better, I guess, right? It kind of flows, right? But so then, my beloved, or beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And let me just say, this is one of the verses that will probably end up in my series, most taken out of context verses. All right? And, and there's another one in Philippians 2, Philippians 4, actually, but Philippians also. All right, later, but it's, it's done much harm to the body of Christ when that verse has been isolated and taken out of context. 
Well, we're not going to do that this morning. So I don't even tell you what it means by that way. All right, we want to know what it means and what it means in context. So it's in these words here in verses, verse 12 that we, God through Paul, we, we see the first of the two true and inseparable statements that answer this question, who's working. The first answer, all right, here it is. You are, you are to work. That's the answer. Who, who, who is working? You are to work. And notice who he gives this uh, command to. Uh, he says, my beloved or dear friends, some of your translations say. Uh, Paul is giving an exhortation or a command to believers in the church at Philippi who he loved very much. Remember, Paul planted this church back in Acts, help me, Acts 16. Okay, we've been out of it for three or four weeks, so I'll give you a break. All right, Acts 16. And saw some amazing things happen. He loved these people, which we saw in chapter 1. He just, it's right for me to feel this way about you. And he just pours out all these gushy words for these people. I mean, he loves them. And he also visited them two more times after he planted the church. He's seen them three different times. He loves these people, and he calls them my beloved, my dear friends. And before he goes into this command, this imperative, he refers to them as my beloved, as my dear friends. So they understand he's doing this out of love. And we can never forget that. When we give a command, we give an exhortation, we want to make sure that we're doing it out of love. It will be received much better that way. Um, uh, This command that he gives to work out your salvation, which we see here later, is is to believers, too. It's those who have trusted alone in Christ's sacrifice on the cross for the payment of their sin. Uh, the, the command was not written to non-believers. So one of many ways it's taken out of context. This is not a call to initial salvation. A non-believer cannot obey this command. They cannot do this. They cannot work out their salvation. It's impossible. They can only do that if you misunderstand what work out your salvation means. And we're going to see that here in a few minutes. But it's written to believers. So if you're here this morning and you have... Turn from trusting yourself and you have trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins to be your Savior and Lord, then this command is for you too. But if you're not here this morning, don't don't even listen to this command in in a sense. Don't try to carry this command out because you can't. I don't want you to try to do that. And many people have. It's to believers. Well, it's a command for them. Look here. The last part there of verse 12 to work out your some of your translations add the word own salvation and that's okay it's understood it's a word that's not necessarily there but it's understood he's talking to them personally to work out it's not your neighbor's salvation to work out your own it's personal possessive your own salvation before we examine what it means to work out your salvation look with me at the phrase in verse 12 the very first phrase it says so then And it's to be understood, the word also means therefore. It's obviously pointing backward, right? So when we see the word therefore, we always ask the question, what? What's it there for? Well, you look back, you you find out. He's connecting something that we learned in the verses previous to this. And if we don't get this, we'll misunderstand these verses. So we always look to the so then, the therefores, we're going to look back. Specifically, it's looking back to the obedience of Christ in verse 8. Look there with me again. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's highlighted. This is obedience is highlighted um, 
And it's the occasion of his exaltation. Jesus, God the Son, humbled himself and obeyed God the Father, fulfilling his purpose in dying in, on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. Now, based on Jesus' humble obedience through selfish humility, Paul calls on the believers in Philippi to the exhortation in verse 12. And this ties in with verse 8 and helps us understand, um, these two tie in and helps us understand where verse 12 fits. Now, notice that phrase in verse 12. Look at this. You'll see how it ties in. Just as you have also, what does it say? Look there. Verse 12. Just as you have also always obeyed. You see, Christ obeyed the Father. And now he's saying, so then, my, brother, my dear brothers or my dear friends, just as you have also obeyed, so then look back here what we just talked about. Jesus' obedience of selfish humility that led to his exaltation, led to the forgiveness of sins for people, just like that obedience, so then as you have always obeyed. Now based on that, then you obey. And it helps us understand what it means to work out your salvation. Which is the main verb in this whole in these two verses. To obey is equated to working out your salvation. You see that? Just as you've also obeyed, and then it goes on some other things, work out your own salvation. And they go hand in hand. They mean the same thing. This main verb here, work out your salvation, um, is not only the main verb, but it's also the imperative. It's the command. And it's important for us to see that. that, that Everything centers around this command. Uh, Paul commands them to work out your, your salvation. And again, it's a connected back to verse 8. Uh, it's important to observe what it does not say, though. Okay? It does not say, work at your salvation. None of the translations say that because it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, work at your salvation. It doesn't say, work for your salvation. And this is where this verse has been taken all over the place. It doesn't say, work at your salvation. It doesn't say, work for your salvation. If it said, work for your salvation, it would be heresy. It would completely contradict everything else in the Bible. You didn't work for your salvation in the Old Testament. You trusted in the promised Messiah who was to come. You were saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament just as we are today. No one ever worked for their salvation. It would be an insult to God. So Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. And one of those places in Scripture that he makes it clear of how salvation happens is in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Because if we could work for our salvation, we would get to heaven and say, God, aren't you so glad to have me? Man, I work my way up here. You ought to get a trophy for this. It doesn't work that way. It never will. It never has. It doesn't say work for your salvation. The command, say, say, say this with me. The command is work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Salvation, let's talk about this a little bit. Salvation is not only a work of the past. It's important. Right? It is a work of the past. But it's a, it's a past, present, and future work. And we cannot forget this. Because we want to make sure we see when the word salvation or saved is used in the New Testament, we see it in context and which aspect of salvation it's speaking of. So we see the past aspect of salvation. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. 
We see the present work of salvation. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we see the future work of salvation. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. And the word salvation is used for all those aspects. And they're interrelated. They are related, but they're different as well. It's obvious from the context here that Paul is speaking of the present aspect of salvation. We've seen that. We'll see it again this morning. But he's talking about being saved from the power of sin on a day-to-day, on a moment-by-moment basis. The present aspect. And we call this progressive sanctification. It's a good word. It's progress. It's not like this. Now, there is an aspect Okay, of the past aspect of salvation that most of the time is referred to as justification. That means declared not guilty to be made right with God on the basis of Christ has died for your sins. He's made the payment so that he can declare you right and make you just. Okay, not guilty. There's also something that, that happens at that time too with sanctification. There's also sometimes the word sanctification is used in the perfect tense, which means this past action completed action with a resulting state of being. That we were made holy. Alright? We were made holy, but we were also being made holy. Here's the present aspect of this. And, and, and what he's getting at is this progressive sanctification is the process by which God takes our attitude and our action, actions and lines them up with who he's made us in Christ. This never changes who we are in Christ. We're holy, beloved, forgiven, children of God. That never changes. But this does, doesn't it? We know that. This is progressive sanctification. So this is what he's talking about. Work out your salvation. Work out your attitude and actions in a way that lines up with who God has already made you. We work out what has already been worked in. We work out What has already been worked in us. Paul is commanding these believers to work out their salvation. By daily honoring Christ with their actions and attitudes. By obeying Christ. It's another way to state what was commanded back in verse 127. Look at this. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Uh, They're very, very similar. It's just another way to say it. And it can be applied, right, um, all over the place in our life. And we'll look at that here in, in, in a few minutes. But it's clear that Paul calls these believers and all believers after them, including those here that you're, if you're a believer here this morning, to work out your salvation. Now, here's the question. How long or to what extent are we to obey this command? How long are we to work out our salvation? What's the extent of us working out our salvation? Well, first, Paul makes it clear, first of all, by just the phrase, work out your salvation. It's a present tense imperative. Now, I'm going to do this, and I know it bugs some of you, but you'll never forget it, right? So, past is this. Perfect is past action, all right? Past action, complete action, result of state of being, it never changes. And present is this. And we could keep going. Because that's the tense it's in. It's present. Work out. Continue working out your salvation. Keep working on your, out your salvation on a moment-by-moment basis. 
Just the word tense helps us see what is the extent, how long are we keep working out our salvation. But not only does the word, uh, the present tense, help us understand that, but, but secondly, we, we see this by the context in the words, uh, just as you've always obeyed, not as my presence only, but how, now much more my absence. Paul commends them, first of all, for already doing in the past what he's commanding here. See what he says there? He, he says, just as you, you have always obeyed. He says, great job. And, 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 and Paul goes on to say, not as in my presence only. All right, so he, he's talking about, you. I was in your presence, remember, three times. All right, he saw their obedience, the working out of their salvation, that conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He saw it three times in Philippi. But let me, let me just pause here. Let me join Paul and make this very personal. Let me commend the people of Grace Bible Church. Way to go. I've seen you working out your salvation in fear and trembling. I've seen it in many ways. I've seen it in, in, in private conversations. I've seen it in private acts of kindness. I, I've seen it in, in public displays of kindness. I've also seen it in, in, in private displays of coming along someone who's struggling and encouraging and exhorting them. Some of them need a kick in the rear. Some of them need a hug on the shoulder. But I've seen it. I've seen it all over the place. Praise God that we can see people right here at Grace Bible Church working out their salvation. That's good news. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He also says, not only in my presence when I'm with you, but now much more in my absence. He's saying here that your obedience needs to not only be there when I'm present, but when I'm not around. Now, he, he may have had to address this in the church because some of them, when Paul wasn't there, began to coast. They began to slack off a little bit. When I went to the Atlanta Falcons, I, I learned this uh, terminology real quickly in the first week of, 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 of two-a-days of camp. And it was called the pro-glide. So here's what's the pro-glide. First of all, they film everything you do in practice. Every drill, your stance, everything is filmed. And the eye in the sky never lies. You can come, man, I had a great practice. You never say that because you're going to get ready to go to the film room. And you're going to sit down with all the rest of the linebackers. And we sit in there. So the play goes away. It's on the other side. And, and here I go. It's on the other side. And this is my, like my first play in. It's on the other side. And he, go, he, he clicks it back. McKenzie, what are you doing? I'm just pursuing. They're taking the proper angle to pursue, coach. Hey, veterans, tell McKenzie what that's called. That's called the pro-glide. Because you're not pursuing like your life depended on it. You're just gliding. We want you to run, McKenzie. Never forget that. And I got caught a few more times in that particular film, but I never got caught again doing the pro-glide. And I think some of the people here in Philippi began to do the pro-glide when Paul wasn't watching. But guess who was? The eye in the sky never lies. The Lord was watching. And Paul's saying, not in my absence. Don't be those kind of people that when I'm not around. And don't be looking to me, ultimately. The Lord's watching. We're going to see that aspect here in a second. But to don't do the pro-glide. Keep going. Keep working out your salvation. Now, I've seen it. You're great job. But don't stop now. We're just starting. Paul exhorts him that working out your salvation is all the time. It's the natural thing for one who is born by the Spirit of God to keep working out their salvation. That's already been worked in them. Now notice the last phrase in verse 12 with fear and trembling. This is the attitude by which we are to work out our salvation. Work out your salvation with what kind of attitude? With fear and trembling. 
with awe and reverence is what he's getting to. Understanding that we are working out our salvation before the God who saved us. That's our audience right there. That's who we're working out our own salvation before. We must always remember the truth that's found all through Psalm 39. But just let me give you 139. Let me give you a couple verses that will help remind us this. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. And he goes on and on and on. The Lord is always there. We hide nothing from him. He's always present. And we must remember that. Paul is saying we need to take this serious with awe and reverence, with fear and trembling before the God who has worked in us. We're to work out our salvation. Now let me remind you that this working out our salvation, it takes effort. It takes effort. We are working. The very word that's used here for work is, is, is hard work. It just doesn't happen. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it, it, it will just flat wear you out. Sometimes it takes endurance. It is work. It uses the word work for a reason. Paul exhorts these believers whom he loves and those of us who follow Jesus today with this. Work out your salvation by obeying the Lord just as Jesus obeyed the Father and do it continually. That's his exhortation. That's his command. So the first answer to our question, who is working, is you are to work. You are to work. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. Because <sighs> we're in trouble if it ends there. The second of these ins- inseparable statements, the answers, who is working, is because God is at work in you. Because God is at work in you. Verse 13 again, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The word for here can also be translated because, and it is other places in Scripture, it's the same word, for. You are to work because it is God who is at work in you. We work because God is working in us. So the second answer is who is at work? God is at work. Well, where is he at work? Paul tells us, the believers that here in Philippi and all believers after, that God is at work in you. And if you're here this morning, you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to make you right with God, then he is at work in you. Now, if you were an Old Testament saint and you heard that he was work in you, you would have gone, what is that? They didn't know about God working in them. He worked on them. He worked through them. He didn't work in them. This is a a, a privilege of the new covenant that he will work in us. And Jesus talks about this. If you remember when we went through John chapter 14, Jesus talks to his disciples. He promised his disciples, those who who would trust him later, that this would happen. Look what happens in John 14, 16 through 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be where? In you. For the first time in the history of the world, on, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when the Spirit came, the Spirit was in people. He dwelt in people permanently. Wow! 
Say it again backward. Wow! That's amazing. And, and we, we, we don't get it because that's maybe all we've ever known, but He's at work in us. He's at work in you because He dwells in you. Well, how is this that He works in us? How is it that He works in us? Okay, He works in us, Brian. I got it. How? Well, look again there at verse 13. Both to will and to work. Or your translation may say both to will and to do or to act. Uh, the, the word will here is speaking about a desire. A desire. I love what Alexander McLaren says about this. He was a pastor from Scotland in the, in the, the 1800s through the early 1900s. He explains it well when he writes this. Understand when he wrote it. Okay, this is a few hundred years ago. Worketh in you to will. This expresses more than the presentation of motives from without. It points to a direct action on the will by which impulses are originated within. He works in us by changing our desires. By giving us desires to work out our salvation. Whew! That's good news. I need my desires changed. And he changes our desires. He changes, I like this, just to think about this. He changes our want to. Don't we do what we want to do? We do what we want to do. So I want my want to changed. We all need to have our want to changed. And at salvation, the Spirit comes in and he begins, begins to change our want to's. Now some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because when you came to know the Lord, all of a sudden your desires changed. And I'm looking around this room, a few people I know who have just come to know the Lord in the last few years, and, and I can tell you right now, I've seen the want-tos change. And the desires change. And some of you told me, I can't believe this. I'm now desiring not to read the Word of God. I, I'm desiring to love my wife and really learn what that means. I, I, I just I want to be around the people of God. I never want to do that before. He changes our want-to, He changes our desires so that we can work out our salvation. As those who are born again, we should all be able to attest to that truth. That he changes our desires. Not only does he give us the desire to work out our salvation, but look what Paul says also. Both to will or desire, but he also says that he, he's going to work in you to work. Or your translation may say to do or to act. This is speaking of the power or ability to do the work. He gives us a new desire, and he also gives us the power... Or the ability to do what he's called us to do. Whew. I'm good with that too. Aren't you? If I want to but I can't, I got a problem. But as a believer in Christ, I can want to and I can. And you can too. And I love this. Not only does he just give us the desire, but he gives us the power to work on our salvation. One of the, the clearest examples of this in one verse in all of Scripture is 1 Corinthians 15, 10, where Paul writes this, By the grace of God, I am what I am. What is he? He is a son of God. He is a child of God. He is born again. He's been forgiven. He's a, he's a holy, blameless, forgiven saint. That's who he is. But, but he doesn't stop there. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. It didn't stop there. Oh, we love grace. But you love it more when you understand it doesn't stop at the initial act of salvation. But I labored even more than them all. But, but not I. But the grace of God with me. The grace of God in me. It can be translated that way too. Paul said, I was saved by God's grace. 
But all these things that I'm doing now, I'm laboring on, and I'm working out my salvation. I'm laboring. All these, but it's the grace of God in me. Wow. And I know that's what Paul said somehow in the Greek here. Wow. It had to be there. God's grace is changing us into a new creation. Now he's changed us into a new creation. And the indwelling of his presence through the person of the Holy Spirit gives us the desire and the power to work out our salvation. That's great news. See, the gospel is way more than God sent his son to die to get us out of hell into heaven. It's way more than that. It's this. He died to get Jesus out of heaven into you. That's great news. He's in us. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's the last thing we're going to see here in verse 13. For his good pleasure. God commands us to work out our salvation. And he gives us the desire and power to do so. And look what it says. For his good pleasure. The process of this pleases God. He's pleased with this. It brings pleasure to God, this whole process. He's pleased when he sees his people working out what he has worked within. It brings him pleasure. Don't you want to bring pleasure to God? What a great thing. And he, he works this out so it brings pleasure to himself. God is pleased. So the, the, the second answer to our question of who is working is God is at work. God is at work. And the final answer to our question this morning of who is working, we could say like this, who's working, God or me? Here's the answer, yes. Who's working, God or me? Yes. Yes. You are, you are to work because God is at work in you. And this truth is taught all over the New Testament. If you want to write down these references so you can study them later, I encourage you to do so. Romans 6. Always write down the number first because you for, you'll forget the number, but you won't forget the, the book. Romans 6. Colossians 3, 3 through 5. Colossians 3, 3 through 5. Really 3 through 10. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 5. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 5. James 4, 7. And on and on. And on and on and on. Now, let me just give this example. James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see both of them there? God is at work. And then we're at work resisting. And in Titus, he says to, 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 that, that we are to, to, to say no to ungodliness. Before that, it says the grace of God, verse 11, the, Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God which brings salvation to all men as at work, has changed you basically. Then he, then he gives this exhortation. Say no to ungodliness. Both, right? God's at work, we're at work. Both and. We must be careful never to neglect either one of these truths because it can be dangerous and cause us to be ineffective as followers of Jesus Christ. And this has happened in many movements in the past, and I'm sure it's happening today. Some have only emphasized the first part. I'm at work. They believe God, that God created them, God saved them, and then he just spun it and let it go, and you're, go get them. It's all up to you. They said, man, I, it's, it's all about me. It's all about me working. It's all about me getting it done. And, and that's it. And that leads to legalism. It leads to frustration. It leads to failure. It leads to self-glorification. Because if you're the one doing it all, guess who gets all the credit? You do. That's what that leads to. And, and the other one, 
emphasizes, the other side, is emphasized God is at work. One says, I'm at work. The second side emphasizes God's work, and I think this is the biggest problem today. And, and, and I'll just say, this is the, the, the let go and let God camp. Okay? Let go and let God camp. They only move if they feel God move them. But the only problem is that is how do you know God's moving? What feeling do you have to wait for before you do anything? Is it the, is it the, the, the rumble in the stomach after eating anchovies the night before? Or what? What feeling is it? Now, there's nothing wrong with feelings, but they have to be based on truth. Because if we're only on feelings, we're in trouble. Feelings flunked out in the first grade. You've you got to have truth. And I had a buddy of mine, I shared this when, when we were at camp a few weeks ago, about, in another instance, but I had a buddy of mine in, in college. He was all about let go and let God. And he was a newer believer, and he had heard all this one side, let go, let God, let go, let God, and trying to run from the other error, and we always do this, don't we? The pendulum, one is, I'm at work. God is at work. No, it's right here. But he had gone over here, God is at work, and he was on this campus, let go and let God. So I saw him out one day. He's out in the, what's called the quad at University of Kentucky. Came out of the football dorm, and, and I'm coming to go to class, head down that way. Had to walk about, seemed like two miles to get to class. And here's Kurt. He's just kind of walking around. He's kind of looking up in the air. I said, Kurt, what's going on? Aren't you supposed to be in class? Well, you know, I'm trying to determine if God wants me to go to class or not. And I just don't feel like, I, 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 don't feel, I don't feel the feeling about going to class yet. I'm thinking, yeah, I didn't feel like that when I was taking my nap and got up to go to class either. All right? And, and he just, and then he lived his life for a while just kind of like this, wandering around. Didn't do anything because he was just letting go and letting God, brother. He's just out there just, whoo, the wind just blowing him around. And I'm saying, Kurt, go to class. That's what God wants you to do is to go to class and be a good steward. Here's the biblical principle. Whether you feel like be a good steward of the money that somebody's investing you for you to be here. Go to class. Now, that's an extreme, but that's how a lot of people live their life. They're waiting woo, for the, the, the Spirit to move. The Spirit's moving, brother. Right here, all the time, the Spirit's moving. God's speaking to us all the time, right here. We don't have to wait for the feeling to come. Now, often when we do obey, there is a feeling that comes, isn't there? Maybe it's tough when we're doing it, but it, the feeling inside, the peace that surpasses all understanding, comes, right? Go to class. Go to class. Now look back with me. I want you to see this, and we're going to end with this. I want you to look back at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility of mind. Regard one another as more important yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Who finds that hard to do? The rest of you are liars, all right? That's hard. It's, it's, it's all, it's, in fact, it seems impossible. Then, then, then Paul in verse 6 through 8 makes it worse. He says, do it like Jesus. Be selfless in humility like Jesus. Oh, yeah, great. He's a son of God. Are you kidding me? How can we do that? How are we to live this out? Here's the answer, verses 12 through 13. That's how we do it. We work out our salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in us, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. That's how we do it. What does this look like practically? When a brother and sister or a sister is in need of something and you give of your time, talent, and treasure to them, you are at work. Because God's at work in you. Men, when you're tempted to look at something you shouldn't and you don't do it, great. You know what happened? You were at work because God was at work in you. Ladies, when you're tempted to, to, to enter in a conversation where some other woman's being downgraded, and you don't, guess what? 
You're at work. Why? Because you're trusting that God is at work in you. He's at work in you if you do that. If you don't do that, he's at work in you. Rest assured, students, if you're tempted to cheat on an exam and you don't, great, you know what? You're at work. You made a choice not to cheat. And trust that God is at work in you. For he is. And as James would say, when someone is in need of food or daily clothing and you help, make no mistake about it. You helped. You helped. Because God is working in you. Both the will and the work for his good pleasure. You see how that works? Isn't it wonderful? Who's working? You are at work because God is at work in you. Conclusion. Here we go. So keep working, trusting that God is at work in you. Keep working. How do you know he's at work? Well, if you're obeying him and you're, you're, you're conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, guess what? God's at work in you. Both the will and the work for his good pleasure. So keep working, trusting that God is at work in you. Good news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are at work. But Lord, we're to work. We're to work. Because you are working in and through us. Lord, we thank you for that great news. Lord, it, the, the commands before this are just impossible. They're, they're too heavy for us. They're too much. So, Lord, thank you for giving us hope and assuredness that, Lord, we can work out our own salvation. We can live out what you've worked in because you're at, still at work in us, giving us the desire and the power to please you. 